Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this time is Dr. Will Gaffney. Dr. Gaffney is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. She's the author of several books, including Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to women of the Torah and of the throne. She's also an Episcopal priest. We talked a lot about biblical interpretation, including womanist biblical interpretation. And for those who aren't familiar with the word womanist, it was coined by the author Alice Walker, and I put a link on my Podbean page so you can see her full extended definition, but it briefly means a black feminist or a feminist of color. This was a rich conversation, and if you've ever felt like you have, quote, failed, unquote, at reading the Bible, I hope you find it helpful. Well, Dr. Will Gaffney, thank you so much for being on the Failing Boldly podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you today, Christian. Um, Before we start talking, a lot of our conversation will be focused on uh, the book that I found so powerful and so helpful, Womanist Midrash. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own upbringing, particularly as it relates to how you were taught to read the Bible uh, growing up uh, and your relationship with the Bible uh, as you through your childhood and uh, into your um, scholar, scholarly career? I was taught to read the Bible like many folk uh, without any nuance. It was something to be studied, which mostly meant memorized and read directly into our lives with no adjustment for differences in time and continent and understandings of science or the human person. I went to Sunday school and youth camp and did Bible drills. But something about the stories were interesting to me. And I read the Bible when I wasn't assigned to for Sunday school or by my parents. And uh, it was an important companion throughout my life. Uh, When I went to college, I was very intentional about the Bible I took with me. And I had one Uh, college girlfriend who uh, we read Bible together, or at least were accountable to each other for reading scripture. So scripture has been a companion throughout my life. Do you remember when you started to um, account for some of the things that you mentioned too, uh, and started reading out of a perhaps a more womanist lens? Probably by the time I was in high school, I was equipped to do some critical thinking about scripture, I went to Catholic high school. And while we did not have a particularly critical introduction to biblical studies, I was studying languages. So I was uh, reading French and reading Latin, and it was my French Bible that I took with me to college. And so I was Mm. immediately aware of issues in translation, since that was what so much of my homework was about. And I knew the Bible had not been written in English So my basic understanding of the complexity of language and shifting from one language to another had me interested in translations. And while I wasn't equipped to answer the question, I was very curious about which translations of the Bible were good. Clearly, you're so steeped in Hebrew. And so it's interesting to hear your interest in languages growing up. Do you, can you... um... Talk a little bit about where that came from. Was it your, did your family or, or, or parents um, foster that in you, that love of different languages? They fostered a love of travel and exploration and 
culture writ large. So we did go to Europe and spend uh, a fair bit of the summer when I was little. And I remember playing with the different kids in the different countries. And so I picked up enough to, you know, pass the ball, uh, ask your mom for a cookie, you know, not to (laughs) eyebrow stuff, but um, the way that children make it work. So I had that flexibility early on. And I seem to think that in my either pre-K or K, we were exposed to Spanish because I have this story I tell myself about myself of having learned and forgotten Spanish more than one time. So I think I had a tiny tot exposure to Spanish. Uh, And then again, in high school, I did French and Latin and uh, felt some more than some uh, capacity with them. Uh, And I knew that I was good at languages, but that didn't prompt me in terms of my vocation until much later. It was really something I took for granted. In the in your book, you use the phrase "sanctified imagination," which which I just love. In my experience as a pastor, um, and when I talk to folks about reading scripture, reading the Bible, sometimes they're either very intimidated by it, and so they don't even attempt anything, uh, or they put it up on such a high pedestal and they don't want to wrestle with it or disagree with it or uh, find places where it might disagree with one another. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that phrase sanctified imagination and how it relates to midrash, which might be um, a phrase that some people aren't familiar with and how you encourage people to to read their own scriptures using midrash and or sanctified imagination. Well, the sanctified imagination is a practice of black preaching. It is a specific cultural production. And it is when uh, a preacher in the tradition goes beyond the literal confines of the text. And what's interesting to me about it is, one, I grew up with it, and it makes preaching rich, but also it comes uh, to fruition in contexts where there might be uh, very literal and very narrow understandings of the text, and it makes it possible for people to go beyond the text. And so that's exciting for me as a scholar. And by invoking the words in my sanctified imagination, the preacher signals to the congregation uh, that she or usually he and my upbringing, although I should note, it never occurred to me that women couldn't be pastors. I just didn't didn't see a whole lot of them. But, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of butterflies Mm -hmm. either. And I didn't doubt their existence. So that (laughs) that signaling uh, relaxed the congregation. So. uh, they wouldn't say, oh, that's not in the word, that's not in the Bible. They understood that they were getting uh, a particular type of sermon illustration that is indigenous to Black preaching. As a scholar of Midrash, Midrash is Jewish biblical interpretation. It is rooted in the Hebrew language. It is a uh, particularly formal and academic type of biblical interpretation. And it involves a number of things from uh, translation and word studies to uh, analyzing uh, patterns in the passage being studied and patterns in the larger biblical text. And in that discourse can sometimes add material to fill gaps in the text. And so there has arisen a very colloquial, imprecise understanding of Midrash as simply rewriting Bible stories. And that's not 
uh, what it is. The term is used loosely in that way. But I'm a scholar. And so when I talk about Midrash, I'm talking about the rabbinic practice of Midrash. And I studied rabbinic scholarship focusing on the Tanaitic period, which is roughly overlapping with the time of the New Testament and includes the literature of the Talmud uh, and the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the body of Jewish literature that comes between the Hebrew Bible and the Talmud. Uh, So when I uh, started thinking about my own ancestral practice of the sanctified imagination, I heard in it resonances for some of the storytelling aspects of classical rabbinic midrash. And so I brought those two things together in my own work. And as a biblical scholar, I am a womanist, a Black feminist, uh, a woman whose feminism is richer, deeper, thicker than white women's feminism, as is part of Alice Walker's definition. So those two things came together in an interpretive approach to the scriptures that I call womanist midrash. profoundly feminist, profoundly Black feminist, and deeply rooted in the analysis of the text uh, in Hebrew, making that explicit and available to contemporary readers who don't know Hebrew, and drawing on the storytelling aspect that links the sanctified imagination in Black preaching and Midrashic expansion in rabbinic literature and beyond rabbinic literature to the present moment. Do you find when you when you describe that particular laity, do you find that they sense uh, you mentioned earlier when the preacher would use the phrase sanctified imagination, that there was uh, a a sense of I can't remember if you used the word word relief, but a sense of um, of knowing and giving them permission, perhaps to also engage the text in that way. Do you find when you talk to laity about this, do you find that that's true? Well, certainly in the Black church, this is a known phenomenon. So that's the point where people settle into their pews and hunch their neighbors and go, oh, this is going to be good, uh, because this is where uh, <laughs> the, the preacher shows her prowess for telling stories or making rhymes or painting pictures. Um, so it's not only uh, received uh, with permission, but it, it's entered in fully and, uh, and enjoyed. You mention in your book that a feminine language occurs in the text repeatedly of God, or feminine images are used repeatedly of God. You actually also say, uh, which I really appreciate, that feminists and womanists could be considered biblical literalists because of that. I'm wondering, when you speak to audiences, are people generally open and curious about that, or is there some hesitancy and resistance to using feminine language for God? Uh, Some people are surprised. I remember one young man on Twitter when I posted uh, the one of the opening pages from Womanist Midrash, where I talk about in Genesis, the spirit of God being introduced in uh, masculine and feminine language. And I want to say uh, that is right about page 15 uh, in following for those who know that. Um, and one of the things he tweeted back at me is, oh, this can't be possible because if it would <laughs> was, people would know about it. This is huge. And so we talked about um, the ways in which the, the 
scriptures are translated. So for those who have not read Womanist Midrash and, and do not know uh, of what I'm speaking, in the very first two verses of Genesis, God is introduced uh, with uh, uh, Bereshit bara Elohim, when beginning he created, and then in the next verse, Veruach Elohim Merachafet Al Hamayim, and the Spirit of God, she was hovering over the waters. And it is the case that the Spirit of God is feminine throughout the Hebrew Bible, and uh, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, is neuter. So one can say that the Spirit of God is never masculine in the Scripture, no matter what testament you're in. And the reason that people don't see that when they open their Bibles in whatever translation is that there is uh, a de facto translation conspiracy. So what one sees is the Spirit of God was doing whatever the Spirit of God was doing. And uh, translators avoid the pronoun because the only correct pronoun would be the feminine pronoun. And because people have been shaped to think of God as male, uh, some think of the Spirit as, as feminine or female, um, that people read the Spirit of God and they continue to hear he, him, and his mm -hmm. in that. So I wrote Womanist Midrash for people who cannot read Hebrew and show them uh, places not only where there's feminine language about God, but as I discuss all of these characters, things that would not be visible to people simply reading the text in English. And in terms of when I do this sort of presentation in purpose, in person, rather, um, I often use uh, a piece of software like Accordance Biblical software where I can uh, show uh, participants by clicking on a word and have the grammatical data come up so they can see for themselves. Oh, yeah. this verb about God is masculine. Oh, this verb about God's spirit is feminine. So I don't tend to get pushback because my teaching and my presentation is rooted so deeply in the biblical text. And that also comes from uh, my Black church background, uh, where a mantra is, show it to us in the word, right? Mm. So if I were to make a theological proposition about how the God of all creation include all genders, um, I can make a good and solid argument, but there are people that will not reach because it is a, a philosophical and theological argument. But uh, if I show them something in the text uh, that all of humanity is in God's image and all of humanity comes in many different uh, flavors and makeups, uh, then we could have that conversation more easily in some spaces. Yeah, I appreciate that. Too. And I appreciate, too, it sounds like trying to show them using the tools uh, so that they can also begin to further their own familiarity and comfort with the scriptures uh, and really begin to dive in, and kind of do their own work too. One of the things you do too is you really painstakingly go through and lift up every mention of a woman in the Hebrew scriptures. You note that the preservation of their names is, a, is significant because as few as 9% of all names in the Hebrew Bible belong to women. In addition to this, you kind of use your own sanctified imagination to begin to wonder what their stories are. Why is it important for us to know these quote-unquote minor characters in addition to the women that we may already know, like Sarah and Bathsheba? 
Yes, my intent with this book was to focus only on characters that people would not know. You know, there's a whole nother Bible in mm. your Bible, so to speak. But the way the publishing industry mm. works, um, the publisher was concerned that people would not pick up a, a book if they didn't recognize anybody on the table of contents. So uh, the compromise was to cover some of the characters who are well-known, you know, your Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and uh, characters who are less well-known. And so that's why fully half the book is on the royal women of Israel and Judah, uh, uh, most of whose names uh, your average Bible reader does not know. Um, but so uh, this larger biblical literacy project is one of my endeavors. And uh, my next two volumes, really next, let me not count the volumes, all of my next productions uh, will focus on uh, women who are lesser known. So the uh, women's lectionary for the whole church that I am writing for uh, the Episcopal Press, uh, which should come out hopefully in August, the first two volumes. I'm focusing on uh, texts with women that are broadly unfamiliar. The second volume of Womanist Midrash, focusing on women in the prophetic texts, I'm doing a very similar project uh, that will be probably about two years. And then the final two volumes of the women's lectionary. So uh, that is my focus, bringing these characters who are lesser known to four and doing a deeper dive in characters that people may know something about, uh, making more readily apparent uh, some of the treasures in the text when you get beyond uh, an English translation. You also, um, in, in your book, not just lifting up those that characters that others might not know as well, but also characters when, if they do know them, they have a particular or quick uh, reaction to. So Jezebel is one, is one example. And so is that also part of what you wanted to do to help people look at a biblical character more holistically and, and to try to hear part of their story that they may not um, either realize or don't take the time to really learn. Right. As a, again, as a uh, biblical literacy paradigm, uh, my intent is that people would know these characters and their texts in context, in their literary context, in the scriptures, but also to some degree in the uh, ancient context in which their stories are set. So something of the sociology and anthropology uh, and religious culture of the time, geography, all of those things are important in shaping a character and knowing what an ancient reader or hearer might know as soon as they hear the introduction to a character um, or the introduction to a biblical book. There's a, a whole set of responses that are encoded that we, by virtue of not being from that culture and not knowing all of the signifying language, uh, don't experience. So we're already coming into these texts as uh, as aliens and strangers mm. uh, without the shared cultural commonality. So part of my writing is to bring some of those things to the fore so people have some idea how and why these characters were written as they were for their audience. In, in doing your research in some, in some of these uh, women characters, do you have... A, one or two that jump to mind, like that are particularly important to you, that are particularly inspire you? 
Judith is a favorite. She's not in uh, Womanist Midrash, and I don't know uh, when I'll write on her. But uh, as an Episcopalian, of course, I have a unabridged canon of scripture, uh, unlike Protestants who had a nasty accident with a pair of scissors in 1782 and wound up with 66 books. Uh, But Judith is is (laughs) definitely one of my favorites. Um, I also have a a very high uh, Marian devotion. Uh, The Ever-Blessed Virgin is particularly important to me. I started uh, my academic work with the women prophets. My first book, Daughters of Miriam, looks at women prophets in ancient Israel and the ancient Afro-Asiatic world, and I got into women prophets um, primarily through Holda, who was new to me in seminary. I knew about Miriam and I knew about Deborah, and that was actually enough for me. Uh, there was there were students from, in my divinity school who came from places where women didn't preach and didn't pastor, and I just thought that was bizarre. I had no idea this was a major controversy in the church, and you know people have been fighting about it for thousands of years. I looked at my Bible. I saw God made women prophets. Women prophets proclaim God's word. Uh, that was pretty much done as far as I was concerned. Um, mm. And an opportunity came to help my uh, dearly beloved and now sainted uh, Hebrew Bible professor, Gene Rice, on his King's commentary. And he sent me to do the research on Hulda, who was new to me. And she was the uh, prophet of King Josiah. And uh, it's interesting because now as a scholar, I know that both Jeremiah and Zephaniah were alive and working at the time. But when a text needed to be interpreted by a prophet, uh, they were never considered uh, Holda and only Holda was engaged for that task. So Holda has a, a special place, uh, having led me into the study of women uh, prophets, also because she has a special place in the canon by assessing the piece of text that turned up in the temple treasury, she performs the first act of canonization. She is the first person to say, this written, these written words are words of God. These are scripture. These are sacred, and we are accountable to them. And that's a very significant development in the production of scripture uh, to become something that we might call a Bible eventually. Hmm. Do you mind if I ask what about, you'd mentioned that Mary is, uh, even though, what is it about Mary that um, you're particularly drawn to? I uh, I always say that Episcopalians are both uh, Protestant and Catholic, and neither Protestant nor Catholic, that we're, uh, <laughs> you know, fish and fowl. And so uh, my Anglicanism is is very Catholic. In, in many ways, mm. but I'm firmly Protestant about the Blessed Virgin being uh, fully human, a fully married, fully sexual person uh, in a relationship uh, that uh, got very complicated, that started off in, in, in complications. And uh, there are passages of the text where Joseph is not present and one has to ask, did the marriage survive uh, the difficult beginning? And so it is... Uh, this woman with this very uh, troubled and troubling introduction to womanhood, um, mm-hmm. mortal peril, um, a young mother, um, mothering a passel of other folk, uh, worried about this one particular child who was going to get himself arrested and killed one day. And indeed that happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
being on death row with her son, that there is so much in her story um, that has resonances with what so many Black women have have lived through. Um, But she's also a model of fidelity and love and and grace. Um, So all of those things. Yeah, Uh, thank you for sharing that. In the book you write, as a womanist, I like to call the names of women ancestors whenever possible. I'm wondering if you could share what exactly does that practice look like? How is it lived out? Well, Africans in America and and Africans in other places um, really suffered spiritual mutilation at the hands of uh, missionary Christianity, where... uh, all of our indigenous practices, our ancestors, our gods, all of our traditions were just, you know, uh, ripped away at a fell swoop and identified as uh, idolatrous. Um, uh, while some Christians, particularly Catholic Christians, continue to have access to their, you know, saints, elders, and, and ancestors. So part of my uh, engagement with my own particular ancestors in my, in my family and my lineage and my cultural ancestors is uh, taking back, there's a gospel song, taking back what the devil stole. Uh, so taking back my culture and my heritage and uh, recognizing the ways in which I am part of what Hebrews would call a cloud of witnesses, that I'm the mm-hmm. product of an ancestral culture. And across times, uh, women have um, have not always been received with the stature uh, which they were due, um, whether it was women um, being uh, penalized, sometimes lethally so, for their ancestral work, for uh, their root work, uh, their their healing work, uh, being labeled witches, all of that. Uh, it's just important to call the names of women who also get folded in behind men, um, uh, men who build on the work, take their work, get known for their work. So uh, uh, whether it's in prayer or in ritual, in libation, um, or naming ancestors uh, in the in the work I do on the pages, all of those ways of honoring ancestors. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Sometimes it's just telling, well, usually, you know, uh, telling a better story or telling the whole story. So uh, a story womanists like to tell is um, how uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, heard uh, Prathia Wynne Hall preaching, and she preached about her dream. And he said to her, I want to use that. And she gave him permission. So when we talk about Dr. King's I have a dream speech, it's really Reverend Prathia Hall's I Have a Dream sermon that he, with her permission, adapted to his speech. But if we only present him as the great man and the great orator, then we lose sight of a woman ancestor who contributed mm. not only to that very important uh, address, but to the shaping of this of this nation. I usually uh, in these conversations by uh, asking uh, the guest, the whole notion of this um, uh, podcast is around is around failure and kind of earlier some of the things I think people may feel like 
They are, especially when it comes to reading scripture, they might be nervous about engaging it or uh, quote unquote failing when, when reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I ask folks to talk about any kind of failure that they might've experienced in their own life, whether it's something small or large, something that happened many years ago or yesterday, something that's humorous or, or a little more serious. And so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing something out of your own life. Sure. I tell this story often for people who want to go to graduate school or even some who are already there. And that is when I determined that I was going to graduate school and I was going to pursue Hebrew Bible, I uh, just sort of up and applied. And I didn't really talk to my divinity school faculty. I didn't have a sense that there's a whole structure around the application for which the documents are a very small part. And so not knowing the culture, um, I applied rather blindly, and I didn't get into graduate school anywhere. I was denied every single place I applied the first year I applied. And Mm. that was very traumatic. I had a strong sense of God's calling on my life. I had no idea what I was going to do next because I had this part of my life all planned. And uh, and then I went to my uh, divinity school faculty and, uh, you know, a couple people, uh, took me in and explained about the culture and the processes and uh, not quite backroom deals, but uh, the the culture and the courtesies and uh, walked me through it. And I applied the next year and I didn't get any brighter. You know, I didn't write any better because those were not the issues at all. I had just not applied in the way in which uh, institutions expect you to apply and which, uh, introduces you to prospective faculty uh, in a way that has them considered whether you're someone they want to study with them. And so I tell that story, one, so that people know that there is absolutely a system for how to apply to graduate school, but to also uh, acknowledge that this was a huge, painful failing, not getting Mm -hmm. into a PhD program anywhere I applied, everybody saying no, and then Mm -hmm. 12 months later, Everybody saying yes, and everybody throwing money at me. Um, <laughs> so uh, sometimes you fail through no internal fault of your own, but you do better when you know better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kept you resilient? What what helped you once that first round and not getting in anywhere? What inspired you to go back to your divinity school faculty and, and ask the questions? I could see some people perhaps just saying, well, I guess it's not meant to be, but you kept you kept asking, you kept pursuing. What was it that kept you doing that? One, I was very clear that was supposed to be the path and I didn't know what happened. And honestly, mm. I don't know if I mustered up the courage to go knock on the door and ask what happened. I was probably drooping and moping, um, trying to keep a stiff upper lip, but that really doesn't work with me when things are really bad and, and really sad. So somebody probably just pulled my ear. Um, but I was convinced that was the path. And I did say, okay, when they explained it to me, I said, all right, one more chance, uh, one more one more year, um, made some short-term plans. I did an extended unit of CPE. Uh, I took some uh, Hebrew Bible classes with local faculty at local universities so that I would be doing something, you know, and not have a gap year. That doesn't look good. But I I was convinced this was my calling and my path. And I was willing to trust uh, these two faculty who were very clear that it was not about me. Um, mm. They weren't even worried about it. Um, and I said, all right. 
but we are certainly grateful that you did keep at it. I continue to recommend Womanist Midrash to so many people, and we also will be looking forward to seeing both volumes of A Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church, which will be coming out later this year. Dr. Will Gaffney, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. And that is this month's episode. Thanks again for Dr. Gaffney for giving her time for this conversation. You can learn more about Dr. Gaffney at her website, willgaffney.com. That's W-I-L-G-A-F-N-E-Y.com. And also on social media, she is an active presence on Twitter, at Will Gaffney. To learn more about my ministry and back episodes of this podcast, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.